welcome everyone. I am Caleb Flaggy and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, we'll be discussing ecotourism and wildlife photography with Court Whalen. Court has a PhD in ecotourism from the University of Florida and leads nature and wildlife expeditions around the world with NatHab Adventures. Court will tell us about dangerous wildlife encounters, how the COVID shutdowns have impacted his industry, and how he has made a brand of his wildlife photography on social media. Enjoy! So we'll start with a nice, easy question. Okay. All right. So many observers were hopeful that the internet would bring us all together as like, you know, one people, uh, that the world would be smaller and help us understand each other better. You know, the internet's kind of obviously failed at that with social media. Do you think that travel, uh, world travel better fulfills that promise of bringing cultures and ideas together? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think, I think travel is probably one of the great binders as a society. I mean, I think it gives you perspective. It gives you knowledge. It gives you worldliness. Um, there's a great quote that says, you know, the most dangerous worldview is a view of the world from someone that has not viewed the world. You can't have a worldly perspective. We are totally a global society as far as influence, as far as trade, as far as business. Um, we are seeing other parts of the world via internet and via social. So in that, as we all know, that paints a, a very rosy picture or a very specific picture. Sometimes it could be the opposite. But actually getting to see these places, I think, is a privilege, but it's also it's part of education. I mean, if we look back to what you know, the early forms of ecotourism really was, I mean, you know, you could argue that maybe the first form was back in the 1800s with what's known as the Grand Tour. Um, and this is when uh, mostly, again, unfortunately, aristocrats, you know, people that could travel at that time would go out as part of their finishing education. You know, boys that are in like the high school age and college age, the last thing they do after they would learn, you know, about all the various arts and whatnot is they'd go travel throughout Europe and they'd learn about art in Paris and they'd learn about fashion in London, maybe it's the other way around, I don't know. But in other words, it's always been viewed that travel, um, world travel has been a serious part of education. And I think it's absolutely that way right now. I mean, many people, I mean, I, I would say I'm like kind of in the educational tour space and people go on our trips because, not because they wanna have five course meals, it's because they want to learn about, you know, what is the wildebeest migration actually doing in the Serengeti? How does it move? What, what does a lion actually sound like? That kind of stuff. I mean, it can be from a sort of visceral, almost tactile thing all the way to just, you know, straight up philosophical, cultural learning. So you work with Natural Habitat Adventures. Can you give me a quick rundown of what they do or what you yeah, do? Yeah, so Nat Natural Habitat Adventures, affectionately known as NatHab. Um, well, first and foremost, we are a conservation travel company, and we, we like to look at it. I often think it's conservation via travel or conservation via exploration. You know, we're trying to get out there. We're trying to showcase the natural world. We're trying to leave money in local economies. Um, but basically, we, the way we do that is by planning really darn good trips around the world. We operate about 45 different countries, 90 or so itineraries. So some countries obviously have more itineraries than just one. Um, but we try to just do the best of the best in every place. Most of our trips are small group and scheduled. We're talking about eight to 10 people. I think that's super important for conservation and ecotourism because people get more face time with their leader, with their guide, with their naturalists. Oftentimes that person is all in one um, and they get to learn and experience a lot more. Uh, they are scheduled in the sense that we pick the best times, the best itinerary, the best places 
kind of like we build it and they will come. We do a little bit of custom here and there, but that's, that's probably one of the big ways that we differentiate ourselves as a company is that it's pretty much all small group scheduled. Um, we, uh, let's see, what else do we do? Well, one, another really big thing is that we are the travel partners to the World Wildlife Fund. So we, we have conservation in our genes and we put a lot of our money where our mouth is supporting conservation projects because that's certainly a huge part of the battles, like the boots on the ground conservation work. But frankly, in the end, at the end of the day, the biggest value for conservation travel, AKA ecotourism, kind of the same thing nowadays, is that when you add value to natural areas by bringing in money, in a lot of cases, a lot of money from foreign travelers to natural ecosystems, that area displays or tends to have more value than if it were just cut down for timber or the animals poached out for bushmeat or turned into a parking lot or whatever. Like the park fees, the employment, all that, um, anywhere literally from five to 500 times more valuable when it's tourism versus, you know, whatever uh, extractive kind of deleterious process someone would otherwise do, you know, uh, destroying the environment. So bring up a good point there. Um, so something else that kind of, you know, funds conservation, you know, especially in Africa is, you know, big game hunting. And obviously there's some controversy around that, um, you know, but there's no denying that that helps fund conservation as well. Do you think that like non-hunting travel, like what you do, is that enough to fund conservation efforts or is, you know, kind of like big game hunting kind of one of those, you know, necessary things in order yeah, to that's, conservation as well? That's a great question. Is it a necessary thing? Um, only because of tradition and skill set and existing mentality. I mean, so first of all, hunting does help conservation in certain ways. Um, in fact, the very first, you know, photographic wildlife observation safaris was born out of hunting safaris. You know, people went to Africa to hunt first, and then they're like, oh, it's actually pretty cool to watch these things too. We don't necessarily need to hunt them and kill them. Um, so there, there's this tradition, there's a root in hunting that um, has woven its way in the communities. Um, certain communities are very adept at it. It's just like if you were really good at a certain business, you're not gonna just completely pivot your business. You don't know how to do something else. You're really good at this. There's tradition, there's knowledge, there's a lot of um, skill set and whatnot. So it's really difficult for a community in Africa or a village or even a to think about, okay, so we're supporting ourselves, You know, these 5,000 people or 10,000 people via X business. Um, okay, no, X business is no longer good. So now we need to pivot over to um, ecotourism and conservation travel. So that's what we're trying to do, of course, but it's not, I mean, it's not working in every single village and every single community because people just, you know, people are stuck in their ways. But the point is, is that we're trying to show folks that it's actually way more valuable. You know, if you keep this line alive, okay, so great. You make 20, $30,000 as a village by hunting out one lion. Um, there are studies out there right now that that lion over the course of its life, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years is way more valuable as uh, really as a photographic subject, as like a spectacle to draw people in than it is if it's just a one-off kind of like, okay, short-term gain, boom, take the money and run with it. So in short, uh, yes, ecotourism definitely can be more valuable than hunting. Um, you don't need hunting to like in a big picture of things to, to add to a piece of the pie. It's, it's a small fraction of the pie, 
But there are certain communities that depend on it so much, it's so ingrained that if you were to instantly remove that, communities would fail, they would suffer, they would go into more extreme poverty, they would go hungry, um, they wouldn't be able to adapt fast enough to ecotourism. Um, and then you have all these societal problems from there. What happens when one village collapses? Well, they emigrate to others and then there's all sorts of issues there. So, so it's definitely a cascading effect. So the thing to me is that, you know, hunting has its place. I would love to phase it out. I mean, I think that that's a great plan, but it definitely has its place. And I'm, I'm very much um, about the species and not the individual animal. Like I think we're in a triage situation in the world and we've got to do whatever we can to save wildlife, save species, like species are declining. It's not individual animals. Like it's super sad when you hear about uh, a venerable uh, old lion that gets taken out of the population, but that isn't really impacting the species. What's impacting the species is when you hear about highways being designed to bisect the Serengeti, cutting off migration corridors, cutting off all that stuff. If, if we need hunting to prevent that stuff, I get it. That That's okay. Then the very last thing I'll say on hunting, again, I'm not super morally opposed to it. I think it has its place. I, I think it'd be great if we realize that animals are better alive than dead. But the biggest challenge I've always seen is that when you go into these remote rural villages and you say, hey, listen, you can't poach animals. You know, like that rhino over there, you can't kill it for its horn and then sell its horn to, uh, you know, Chinese traders or Arab traders for dagger horns or dagger handles or powder to cure whatever. You can't do that. Um, but, you know, these rich white guys from Europe and America, they have about $30,000 so that they can do it. You know, they, they can do that or they can come kill the lion or the giraffe or whatever they want to do. And so it sets this really weird precedent um, of discrimination, of classism, of racism, you know, all that stuff. Like, how can you, how can you say one thing, but then do another and just say, oh, but you have to be rich in order to do it. I, I think the message is that, no, it's, it's inherently bad to take animals out of the population because we have other ways to eat. We have other ways to make money, ecotourism, et cetera, et cetera. So many of your expeditions involve some, you know, dangerous wildlife. You know, you go to see the polar bears, of course, the African safaris. There's all, you know, sorts of animals out there. What, uh, have you had any close calls or have you ever, you know, lost a guide or a guest before? Um, gosh, you know, I'm not, I'm legally not allowed to talk about that ever since the incident. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, so I actually come into contact with probably the most dangerous animal in the world. Quite literally every afternoon that I'm sitting in my backyard um, when I see a, a mosquito flying around, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Uh, but they actually, they're kind of serious though, right? But fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Mosquitoes are literally the most dangerous, dangerous animal in the world. It's because of the diseases they, they carry, but of course, yeah. So it's all relative, you know, I mean, everything is dangerous. I mean, heck humans are super dangerous, but you know, we, we take cautions and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, I do come into contact with my livelihood is quite literally being around some of the world's biggest and baddest animals, um, you know, you look at grizzly bears, polar bears, we're putting ourselves in pretty close proximity. Um, I've, I've definitely had some close encounters. I mean, I think every time we're watching polar bears, even though they're cute and cuddly and you can imagine them sipping Coca-Cola right in the snow, um, you know, they, they are one of the few animals in the world that actively will hunt humans. I mean, their, their bread and butter meal is a 600 pound seal that they drag out of the water with their teeth and their neck from, from an ice platform like humans are actually really not on the food chain because we're just a snack, but you know, 
we, we kind of are. Um, so no, I, I've not had like any real dangerous encounters. We definitely have never lost anybody and ne- never lost any guides. It's a lot about just making sure you know your environment, being safe. You know, first and foremost, we're trying to protect the animal because we don't want to, um, we don't want to familiarize the animal so much that they view humans either on the food chain or as a non-threat. We kind of want to be a little bit aggressive because that way, you know, if, if there are encounters where polar bears walk through villages or towns and they see people, they're not like, oh, you know, this is food or, oh, this is a person that I can go harass or, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, so that's why I think being in a vehicle is really, really key for a lot of this stuff. You know, we often say on an African safari, you know, just stay in the vehicle. Don't dangle your hands out. Don't stand up. Don't, don't break that silhouette. Not so much because, you know, if you put your hand out, a lion's going to just leap out of nowhere and grab it. But, you know, these animals have oftentimes for generations grown up around vehicles and they're super indifferent which is great for wildlife watchers and photographers because they just go about their natural day. Like we are not, we are not inducing any sort of behavior on them. So we actually watch them in their natural behavior, in their natural habitat. Um, but as soon as you break that outline, you know, you, you don't, you're not that normal innocuous vehicle, you know, you become humans, you become something that's like, Oh, this all of a sudden this is a lot smaller. Um, I routinely see animals. I just look at a big polar Rover, like that's the size of a school bus or, you know, a Land Rover in Africa with total indifference. So, I mean, that's, that's a really great thing because what we're trying to do is we're trying to be there. We're trying to observe, we're trying to teach people about this stuff, but we're trying not to have an impact on the environment. Or if we are, we're trying to have a good impact on the environment by saving these critters. I mean, that's the whole, that's really the whole point. Um, and to have a lot of fun, of course. Um, you know, I think my latest kind of close encounter was uh, trekking with gorillas in Rwanda uh, a couple of years back. And so I'm a photographer and I'm often out there either taking video of myself walking and hiking for, for clips later or taking photographs of the environment. Or if, if we're seeing an animal, obviously stopping and taking photos. And I was looking down at my camera for just a, I guess a half a second too long as we're following this big male silverback gorilla to his troop um, to then, watch them, observe them, sit down with them. And then they're just, you know, they're total babies. They just, they just stand around and look at you and go about their day. And they, you know, pick ticks off one another and eat leaves and nap and roll around. But as we were walking, you know, this big silverback gorilla uh, apparently turned around and for a split second made what's known as a bluff charge at me. And I was head of the group. um, And I had my ranger in front of me who is around these gorillas all day, every day. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, looking down at my camera, just about to hit record. So unfortunately I did not get this on tape. I was a hair away from it. And I look up to see my ranger, uh, you know, shuffling backwards, tripping over a big log, falling flat on his back in the mud and a big 500 pound male gorilla about two feet from my face. Um, <laughs> and this grimacing look as just to, just to tell me like, Hey, I'm the man here. Don't forget it. I'm the man. Uh, and really before I could even process and register it, certainly before I could hit record, the gorilla turns around and just continues walking and walking away. Um, and that's just, that's normal behavior, but I, I've never been in front of the group that close to the leader of the group. Uh, in some way. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those stories that'll be with me for the rest of my life, a memory that'll be with me the rest of my life. Cause that was, that was cool. That's when you really feel it. You're, 
you know, you're part of it. You're part of that environment. Um, and having I think most people have just been terrified, but you're like, yeah, that was really cool. That was a great experience. <laughs> yeah, I was too, it was too short to be terrified. <laughs> so now this so ranger, is he, is he armed? Is he supposed to be there for like if, you know, something really went wrong or? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he was armed. A lot of them are armed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's many different roles within the rangers um, and the porters and the guides and the naturalists. But yeah, there are people there in case something goes wrong. I, I actually don't know if anything's ever gone wrong in the in the decades of things happening. They are gentle giants. Um, and again, you know, total bluff charge, but it was pretty darn exciting. But it was hilarious to see, you know, my ranger who's grown up with these gorillas get a little spooked and then fall down. Completely useless like, oh. in the situation. <laughs> yeah, some, some help you are. But it was great, though. Okay. So we've touched on the photography, you know, a bit, you said you're a, you know, a photographer. Uh, so you're a pretty serious wildlife photographer, you know, I'm scrolling through your Instagram right now and it looks like kind of like the, the best of national geographic on here. You know, you have almost like 12,000 followers. Um, you know, how do you kind of get this level of photography while you're also, you know, hosting, uh, you know, these travels with all of these guests, you know, how do you get all that in? Sure. Well, you know, it's, it is definitely practice, practice, practice and practice, you know, just over and over. I think I estimated a year ago as I was like going and cleaning up some of my files, I think I've probably taken about a million photos over the course of my travel and guiding career. Like, like literally like 1 million, you know, extrapolating a per how many photos per trip, how many trips per year, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of time behind the camera. It's a lot of settings. You know, part of it is that I love taking photos for my guests and for my groups. Um, You know, oftentimes I want to put my guests in the best spot to see that wildlife or for them to take photos. So I'm kind of on the side. I'm getting photos of them looking at stuff or I'm getting, you know, a different angle. And so I love sharing those with people because, you know, people never get shots of themselves looking at the orangutan or watching the whale breach. So I, I, I love you know, putting together little slideshows and sharing it after the fact. But then I also lead a lot of photo trips. And the best way to teach the settings that you need for photographing that specific gorilla on that specific mountain is to take a couple shots yourself and be like, okay, cool. So I'm, I'm at ISO 800. That's working for me. Don't forget, you need a minimum of one over 100 shutter speed. So I'm, I'm constantly taking photos alongside them. Of course, if there is a prime position to stand in, you know, I'm going I'm to give that spot to them. Um, sometimes it's, it's, test shots as well. Like, you know, I, I don't know the, the perfect angle to photograph a lion because, you know, has to do with the sun, has to do with your vehicle. So I'll, I'll take a couple of shots and be like, Ooh, that, that position is pretty darn good. Um, so it's a lot of trial and error and testing, you know, really for my guests. Cause I, I want them to go home with the photo of a lifetime. I want them to print it out and put it on their wall, talk about it at dinner parties. Um, you know, I want them to fall in love with this stuff that they're watching. All right, I just did a quick calculation. If you just looked at each of your photos just for a couple of seconds, it would take you over a month of straight viewing to go through all of them. <laughs> well, you better get on it because <laughs> they're, all, they're all worth it. <laughs> all right. Uh, oh, so what's your, what is your Instagram handle so people can check you out? Uh, it is court, just like a tennis court. So C-O-U-R-T underscore Last name's Whalen, W-H-E-L-A-N. So court underscore Whalen. Um, yeah, you'll see a lot of colorful photos of animals and critters around the world. And, and you know, some landscapes and travel photography cultures. I, I like it all. I mean, I think getting back to your other question about, you know, how did I, how did I get so many photos or how do I balance it? It's just, it's just from a passion. It's from doing it for nearly 20 years and yeah, just, just never stopping. 
So you have some other projects going on with photography right now. Is that you have a podcast and a YouTube channel? Yeah, exactly. So the latest thing, uh, well, I guess the very latest is YouTube, but that's still relatively new for me. But yeah, you know, under the same name, Court Whalen on YouTube, I'm doing uh, kind of a mix of conservation, talking about ecotourism, talking about travel, talking about sustainability, but then also talking about photography and science. I, that's kind of me in a nutshell, all those various things. So I've got a couple episodes up there, you know, talking about how to photograph backlit wildlife, you know, challenges and solutions out there. But then the podcast is probably my, my latest, biggest endeavor. I've been doing that for about seven, eight months, just to sort of the end of 2019, I was getting into it. And yeah, it's the Wild Photographer Podcast, all things nature, landscape, wildlife, and travel photography. The idea is that there, you know, it's kind of an abstract thought to think about teaching a visual art via a radio, more or less. However, you know, there are so many times, as you guys might be listening right now, where you can't watch something visual, you can't watch a video, you're driving your car, you're on a train, you're, you're flying somewhere. Um, and being able to listen to techniques for, you know, my top five techniques for photographing elephants in Africa while you're on that plane to Africa, not, not only just gets you excited, but it gets you prepared. But it, I mean, it works pretty well, like even though there's not the visual aspect of it. I mean, I listened to a few episodes and, you know, one of the things I picked up was you said to like when you're you know, taking a picture of somebody to focus on the eyes. And I think you, that might have even been in a wildlife context. But I was just using that on people and just such, you know, just one little trick, you know, makes the pictures, you know, so much better. It's huge. Yeah, you're exactly right. So that's that's my technique, you know, having guided photo trips for you know, a couple of decades now being with photographers of all abilities, mo mostly in kind of like the serious hobbyist to, to amateur to beginner stage, is I, I realized what things I can teach in a very, very simple, basic way that within a couple of minutes can just turn your photography around into something that you really, really like. Yeah, focus on the eyes, the rule of thirds, basics of lighting and composition, leading lines, some fun stuff like that. So that was my goal is to share what I've learned that I know other people want to learn in, you know, a convenient way. And a lot of these principles could even just be applied to, you know, basic iPhone photography. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say most photography, you don't need anything fancier than an iPhone, especially when it comes to landscape, travel, people photography, real deal wildlife stuff is the only time because it's hard to get a decent telephoto lens in an iPhone. But yeah, all your basic rules of composition and lighting can be done on an iPhone. You know, they say, the very, very best camera in the world is the one you have with you. <laughs> uh, and now we're at this amazing luxury that we all have cameras with us pretty much all the time. And it turns into kind of the best camera in the world because you have it when you need it. I think we kind of, well, not really joke, but we kind of discussed this like maybe like, I don't know, five or eight years ago that eventually the, uh, you know, the iPhones will be able to, you know, digitally, you know, do the depth of field and all that. And it's going to get closer and closer and closer to mimicking you know, like a, a serious camera. And, mm -hmm. you know, sure enough, we're, we've gone really far down that path in that short period of time. We're pretty much there. I mean, the, the amount of money invested uh, from these companies in these phones uh, give them actually big advantages over fancier DSLRs and mirrorless because of how they use the, you know, various technicalities like sensor size. I mean, if you see some of the new smartphones, uh, what, what they call dynamic range, meaning, the ability to see lights in darks, like lights in shadows and dark spots in light spots. Um, our human eye is amazingly good at doing that. We have a very good dynamic range. 
cameras are not that good at it, but these new iPhones and other smartphones, holy cow. I mean, it, it really looks like you're just looking through your own eyes at these images of, of mountains and landscapes and rivers. So yeah, they're, they're actually, they're getting better than other cameras in certain ways right. <laughs> already. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So how has NatHab reacted to the COVID shutdowns? Oh yeah, it's been, it's been a doozy, obviously. So international travel um, has been shut down for several months, um, mostly because of various government regulations, not just our own, but around the world. Um, we, we are really looking at communities first and you know when, when do communities feel comfortable uh, welcoming, welcoming us back in? That's the biggest thing. Uh, when that happens, that's when we're gonna be ready to travel far and wide. Until then, we've got you know, we've got some, some time to build. We've got some time to develop some new trips and some new products and all sorts of stuff. Um, but really we're kind of just treading water at the moment. Um, we've moved a lot of trips to 21. Um, we are planning for 2022. Um, you know, we are, uh, we're, we're definitely on the back foot and on the defensive, but we're going to, we're going to certainly make it through this. But the challenging thing is I, I think a lot of travel companies, uh, at, can't say the majority. I don't know what fraction percentage, but they won't, you know, it's hard, hard to think about. Unfortunately, I think it's going to take a big hit on the travel world, big hit in the conservation world. But I think we have to always be ready. We have to think progressively. We actually have recently operated two trips in Yellowstone National Park with a tremendous um, respect and tremendous array of COVID protocols, um, you know, various six point systems where we're monitoring hygiene and, and everybody's wearing masks and we're maintaining social distancing. I think NatHab is uniquely positioned because we have always been a very small group travel company compared to that to some of the groups that are running trips at 30 and 40 people like the big bus tours. And they, they've got a lot more work to do ahead of them. But, you know, we, we've always maintained that every single person on our trips gets a window seat, no matter what vehicle we're on, whether it's a safari vehicle, whether it's just a, a airport transfer. So our groups are small and spaced out already. So we have that as a big advantage. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. It's going to be an interesting next few months uh, as we go and start, you know, because travel always thinks about a year plus ahead of time. So we're already thinking about the latter part of 2021 and how, well, really how the whole year is going to shake out. Did you have any trips in progress when things started shutting down? Uh, we did. We had a number of trips. I mean, we, we do, gosh, like 800 plus trips a year. So on any day, you can imagine we have a couple trips physically departing. So yeah, I bet we had, let's just say a dozen trips. Fortunately, uh, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, this whole thing really went down during one of our slower seasons, which would be kind of late winter, early spring. Um, so the volume was lower, but yeah, we, we had to do some pretty real deal, you know, Navy SEAL style <laughs> evacuations, getting people out, you know, from their hotels, cross borders in the middle of the night, just to get people back home. Cause if you recall, the big risk was, okay, things are shutting down. Um, you know, people are, there are going to be, be people that have to stay in a hotel in Ecuador for a month or two because they physically, there are no planes traveling, you know, everything shut down. So, uh, we're happy to say that that didn't happen to a single one of our guests. We got everybody out. We were super proactive. We we're very, very on it. Um, and fortunately, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we're not in a great situation um, as a world right now, but we did get people safe back home. I think the 
most interesting part of COVID is how our concept of time has warped in all ways, not just one way. Like one of the biggest issues in the travel industry is that when other big serious things have happened in the past, SARS, um, the Great Recession, 9-11, they've definitely impacted travel, but they've impacted it on a shorter time frame. Even smaller incidents, like there's always little flare-ups of uh, drought or terrorism or just, you know, big, big world events, but they're, they're kind of like on a 30 to 60 day scale. Like, you know, you don't, you're not worried about um, some of these events a year out or further, but COVID because it's been, well, it, it is such a big thing, but it's also been hyped up to be such a big thing. People are worried on a time scale like never before. So people are now thinking like, holy cow, I've got a trip coming up in March. Like no one in the history of travel, in my experience, has ever worried about a trip that far out. And so they're canceling. And that's what's going to really undo a lot of travel companies is that the, the, the runway so far out is getting shorter and shorter and shorter in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And people's concept of time is just totally, totally skewed. Most, most people in general, are like, ah, I'll see what happens like two months out. That's fine. Like in two months, like, you know, the stock market could change, who knows? Um, you know, all these, some of the, the lesser quote unquote pandemics have been uh, not nearly as big or as long. It's the runway. It's the warped sense of time. It's, it's crazy. So one of your resume items is you have a PhD from the University of Florida in ecotourism. How did you happen upon that degree? I mean, that's not something that you hear, hear about every day. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, uh, thanks to UF, um, they, they were very supportive in me in kind of creating my own discipline. So I had been in the Department of Entomology for uh, undergrad, and I had this big kind of epiphany, like like a lot of people have happened, sort of mine was late in my undergrad when I took an internship. Uh, you know, I paid my way onto an intern, internship to travel with a small adventure travel company to Belize. And that just, you know, I, I was not a big traveler prior to that. I was always interested in nature, but it was a little bit atypical for me. And it, it gave me this epiphany as I was trekking in literally the world's largest jaguar sanctuary, um, you know, watching uh, leaves rustle and, and seeing jaguar paw prints and looking at leaf cutter ants and all that. And it just hit me. I'm like, okay, this is how we save the natural world. We've got to get people out in nature. I then led, you know, high school, a uh, high school group throughout Belize the next couple of weeks. And I just realized that what I really want to be doing is I want to be teaching people about the natural world, about wildlife, about insects, about whatever in the natural world. I, I love teaching. I appreciate the classroom, but we got, we got to get you know people out there to really experience it. Uh, they say you, you cannot save what you do not love and you cannot love what you do not know. So I'm very much in the business of getting people to know things to then fall in love with them. Um, so fast forward, you know, from this epiphany in Belize, I come back and say, okay, I've got to do this. So I talked to Dr. Caponera, um, who is chairman at the, of the entomology department and told him my vision for this ecotourism thing. And he said, gosh, you know, uh, funny you should say that. I've been thinking about ecotourism a lot lately. Um, we're looking at maybe doing an undergraduate kind of focus on that, maybe some courses, but at the graduate level, uh, which I was about to be in, you know, we, we don't, we don't have much. We don't have any curriculum. There's, there are no textbooks out there. It would be up to you to design and develop. Um, but you know, we'll sign on the dotted line. We'll, we'll get you to be there if you're interested. Um, so then I was very lucky and applied for a a fellowship. Um, and I, I got that from the president's office that allowed me to have funding for classes and, you know, coursework, textbooks, that whole thing. And uh, with the support from entomology, um, I was able to do this kind of joint degree for master's and PhD in ecotourism entomology. 
Um, I was then connected to a professor, Dr. Tom Emmel, who had been in ecotourism kind of as a side gig, as a, as a side business um, that had been sort of sitting dormant. I went and talked with him, uh, gave him my vision and my idea, and he quickly became my major professor. Um, he allowed me to kind of take over the reins of this travel company and do what I'd like with it, you know, develop new ideas and new trips and new partnerships. And so throughout the course of seven years, I got a master's, a PhD, um, and guided and planned, organized about 60 expeditions on all seven continents. Um, and I came out of it with a really firm, practical and academic understanding of ecotourism mixed with a very hardcore biological degree. I think my why, you know, it's, it's always important to kind of get your why out there. Um, probably just as much for yourself as for, for others. But I think my why is aiming to save the natural world via travel and via experiential learning. And I think the biggest thing to take away from this idea of ecotourism and conservation travel is not just that it's fun and that, you know, it's, oh, it's so cool to be so close to lions and polar bears. The idea is that people become advocates and people, again, like that quote, you, you, you love it and then you want to save it. In addition, you leave significant amounts of money, especially foreign money, U.S. dollars and euros in these uh, rural villages and in these countries that are developing. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to tell people that, you know, you can't cut down that tree to put food on your table. You know, a lot of people are in their own triage situation in other countries. They are truly subsistence living. They're fighting to put meals on the table for their families. And all they know is to cut down that tree or all they know is to uh, you know hunt bush meat, but the idea of ecotourism and saying, well, you know, if you train a little bit, we'll help train you to be a ranger, or if you help open this hotel or work at this hotel or this restaurant, you can actually earn more money in the long run versus just quick short-term gains. From again, you know, cutting down trees is just the obvious example. There's a great study. Um, it was one of the first of its kind, and it, it was one thing that got me really into the academic side of ecotourism way back when, gosh, almost like 20 years ago, um, is the study from uh, an Australian Institute on sharks of Palau, very small, tiny Pacific Island. And what they did, they measured the total income of shark diving ecotourism in this nation. Um, and then they did a biological survey of the entire shark population, like how many sharks are there and how much income do these sharks bring in for shark diving tourism? It's a huge thing. And they figured out every shark over the course of its lifetime is worth $1.9 million. Wow. Which is extraordinary. Every shark, you know, for the millions and millions of dollars is split amongst, you know, whatever, a thousand sharks in the population. Um, compare that to shark finning, which is a terrible process of just quickly cutting the fins off and selling it for soup or meat or whatever. A shark fin, which kills the shark and takes it out of the population, it's a problem in Palau and the rest of the Pacific. Uh, the, the value of a shark fin compared to $1.9 million, the shark fin, $108. So what I love about ecotourism and conservation travel is that it, it's this very easily translatable fact and figure to explain to local folks that may not have a lot of worldly knowledge that you are going to make a lot more money for your community, for your family in the long run, if you buckle down and do this ecotourism thing, than by just taking the easy way out that maybe, you know, maybe your ancestors have been doing for many, many years, but it's no longer viable or sustainable. And more importantly, it's no longer the most valuable way to use those resources. Let's, let's, let's use them for 
watching and visiting and snorkeling with and photographing and all that. Um, and I think it's going to make for a lot healthier planet. Uh, can you give me some tips on, you know, how to attract a good Instagram following? So basically, um, I was intrigued by it. I, about five years ago or whatever, realized that this is the new digital portfolio for photographers. It is a way to create your brand. It's going to be, a, I mean, it was already a big thing, but it was not as big as it is right now. And I was like, okay, I, I've got to crack this. It's, it's figure outable. Like it, you, you should be able to figure this out. So I did some research. There's, there was some great blog articles. There still are. I mean, the first thing is you've got to produce great content and Instagram being very, very photo centric and less tech centric. I'm like, Oh, cool. Well, that's a natural fit. Like I, yeah, and I you already got the backlog of stuff for that. Or the yeah. Back I have a backlog. Um, so if you don't have great photos, maybe you can compensate via some good storytelling, but more than anything, you gotta have great photos. So I started off with, with a good thing going. Um, and then really the thing is you got to think about what, what does Instagram want you to do? Well, they want people to produce content. You know, they don't produce much original content at all. Um, so they need people to produce great content. They need people to be engaged. They need to, they need people to create a community and they need to have like these spiders of like networking and connections go all throughout their infrastructure. So essentially what that boils down to is consistently routinely posting great photos, um, having something to go along with them, uh, and then making sure you engage with the people that are engaging with you. And um, then also, you know, you have your hashtags, um, which are a big thing. I mean, they're, they're kind of goofy, you know, like I, I mean, they're kind of silly, but every post is allowed up to 30 hashtags. And um, there was a great metaphor and I'm, I'm not going to explain it well, but if you ever see this, if you come across it online and see it, whoever wrote it did a really good job. Hashtags are like, if you're in a big auditorium, like a, a career convention center, like Instagram is a convention center. Hashtags are like the individual booths. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to like find clever booths and clever like niche booths. Like, you know, maybe you want a booth that is like really big and splashy and show and you're giving everybody free stuff, but like everybody's there. So your relationship with that person is not that great. Um, or you pick really, really niche things and you get two or three people to come by, but they're like two out of three are going to become customers. Um, it's a sort of a balance there. What I have found and what I've read is that you want to choose hashtags that have between one and 10,000 posts, I guess, associated with them. And it's really hard to do that, you know, um, based on your topic. But in other words, if you do a hashtag, like hashtag nature, you know, there's 74.5 million hashtags. And if you boil that down to per second, someone's looking at that hashtag is, you know, I think maybe I'm just going to throw it out. Like maybe there's like 10 photos per second. So the chance right. of your photo appearing at the top is almost non-existent. So you just don't even do that. Mm -hmm. You know, what you need to do is start looking and researching and be like, okay, nature in the wild. Okay. That's, that's legit. That's a thing. And Oh, there's 18,000 posts. Boom. That's I'm doing that. And I'm going to use all 30 of my hashtags. Um, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tag other cross posting websites or uh, Instagram handles on my photo. And I don't know how many you can have, but I usually do about eight to 10. And so there are a ton of like, you know, wildlife seekers and, and, best and, and, you know, they have their own account. 
And so if you tag them in a photo, they get pinged. Like if everyone was ever tagged you in a photo, like you get a, an extra notice. Now these big groups, you know, they don't pay as much of attention as we do, but they do see them. And most of these guys are like just reposting stuff. So if you have a great shot and it just happens to see the right person at the right time, they're going to repost. And so I have, I don't know, maybe I have a couple hundred reposts, maybe even more um, that get like thousands and thousands of views. And then they usually credit me um, when I get notified that I, my photo is reposted and tagged, I'll go in there and I'll leave a comment. I'll say, Hey, thanks for the repost. Thumbs up. And then that way, you know, my comment is, up there and then when right. people see the photo they're like oh who took this this is a great shot they go to my profile make sure you have a great profile um not words but like the photos and then boom um you get a follower and that's the whole thing um i've had a couple photos go like viral on explore that's boosted you know like i'll get like hundreds of followers over overnight and I'm like whoa where'd that come from um i think one was like a lemur shot of them doing like a little kung fu dance I uh, had an Arctic Fox video that went really, I actually was contracted by or contacted by a viral company um, that uh, reserved the rights to it or something or something. They didn't pay me, but at, anyway, they were interested in that. I have friends that are bear guides that make a thousand dollars a month from licensing their videos. Really? Like, wow. Yeah. So like that, so in, to go back to the beginning, like that's a little bit of a why I'm like, holy shit. Like there is real money to be made in this. Like this, this guy pays his, mortgage from this one bear video of a bear coming down and sitting down next to him. You've probably seen it sitting down and like looking at him and boom, seven seconds makes him 12,000 bucks a year. Very nice. Well, Court, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure, Kale. Great to be here. Good to have the connection to Gainesville.